This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I'll be your host. This is episode 227, entitled Different Ways That Jesus Is Son of God. In this week's episode, we will explore the three primary ways in which the New Testament authors portray Jesus as the Son of God. Now, our primary focus will be looking at the evangelist and theologian Luke, who is the author of the third gospel account as they are arranged in our New Testament. And Luke also wrote the sequel to the Gospel of Luke, which is the book of Acts. And so we will also look at the book of Acts. Our purpose in zeroing in on Luke is to note how one particular writer seems to be able to portray Jesus as Son of God in three very interesting ways. So here's some of the questions I would like to explore in this week's episode. First, what does Son of God mean when it is attributed to Jesus' birth? Second, what is the significance of Jesus' baptism when it comes to the declaration that he is God's Son? Third, what is the further significance of Jesus being declared the Son of God at his resurrection slash ascension into heaven to be enthroned at God's right hand. And lastly, what is adoptionism and is this doctrine taught by the evangelist Luke? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is looking at the Son of God by birth. And so we'll be focusing on the writings of Luke. Luke, of course, wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And so we'll be looking at Luke chapter 1 to examine how Jesus is described as a son of God based on his birth, based on his coming into existence. So we will start in verse 26 of Luke chapter 1. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. She was very perplexed at this statement and kept wondering at what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom 
will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. That's Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 35. And you can hear there at the end that it is because of the reason of the Holy Spirit descending upon Mary, which is further described as the power of the Most High overshadowing her, that the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. Here Jesus is described as the Son of God, even though he is not yet brought into existence, but the angel Gabriel is telling us that it is because of this miracle, because of the power of God, the Holy Spirit coming upon Mary and overshadowing her, that the Holy Child will be described with this title. Jesus is described as Son of God because of his birth, meaning he is Son because he is fathered by God. God, of course, is the Father, and Jesus is the one here that is brought into existence. And actually, the Greek of verse 35 tells us a little bit more interesting data. The phrase in English where it says, the Holy Child is actually this participle, to yenomenon, ion, which is the holy child that is being begotten. The holy child, the child that is being brought into existence. And so it just gets translated into English as the holy child, but it is the holy child that, of course, is being fathered. God, of course, is fathering this son. So, son naturally draws its meaning from the fact that it is being brought into existence in this miracle birth. And, of course, God, through the extension of the Holy Spirit, is the Father. God is fathering Jesus, and so Son of God has its natural meaning in that Jesus is the Son of a Father. So, here you can see Luke describing Jesus as the Son of God in not one, but in two particular places. In verse 32, he will be the Son of the Most High. And of course, verse 35, because of the miracle, he will be called the Son of God. And Son of God here unambiguously refers to the fact that Jesus is born, but not just being born, he is being brought into existence. And I need to make this very clear to our listeners that if Jesus is brought into existence, that means that prior to that moment, he was not in existence. Jesus did not eternally exist, according to Luke. Luke believes that there was a moment of time when Jesus was brought into existence, and prior to that, Jesus was not in existence in any real or tangible way. Just like any other person who is born, they are brought into existence at the moment of their birth, and prior to that, they are not existing anywhere. 
So there is Luke describing Jesus as Son of God based on his birth. But this is not the only way that Luke uses Son of God language. So let's move to our second point. Point number two, which is Son of God at baptism. And so we're going to look at Luke's portrayal of Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist. This is in Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was open, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. That's Luke chapter 3, verses 21 through 22. And so what we have here is Jesus being baptized, and we have the Spirit descending upon Jesus. And then we have this voice from heaven saying, You, you Jesus, are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Of course, if this voice from heaven is saying that you are my son, then the voice clearly must come from the Father. If the Father is saying you are my son, then obviously that voice is admittedly referring to God the Father. That is clear. Now, what some readers overlook is the fact that Luke here, in describing this voice from heaven which says, you are my beloved son, is actually alluding to a very important psalm, Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 is what is called a coronation psalm. It is a psalm that describes the coronation of a king, the time when a king is enthroned and when a king is given his crown and he is given his authority to rule. And so, You'll notice this when you look at Psalm 2, and there's a very important part of this psalm because Luke is expecting his readers to understand the connection from Psalm 2 and the very important implications that are taking place here. Because we have to remember, Jesus is already born. He's already the Son of God based on birth, and now we have the Father acknowledging that Jesus is Son of God in light of this baptism, which seems to be a anointing ceremony, a ceremony where Jesus is anointed, and of course, as the Christ, he is the person who is anointed. And this baptism seems to be the place in Jesus' ministry when he is anointed for his ministry. So let's look at Psalm 2 in order to really make sure that we understand the implications that Luke is drawing from this allusion. So in Psalm 2, starting in verse 6, it says, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or today I have become your father. That's Psalm 2, verses 6 through 7. And so you can see in verse 6, we have the installation of the king. Where is this king installed? He is installed upon Zion, my holy mountain. Zion is just a poetic way of describing Jerusalem. And so the installation of this king, God's king, which is the Davidic king, 
And then we can see in verse 7 an elaboration of what it means for God to take a particular king and to install him, to coronate him for his royal purposes. In verse 7, it says that you are my son, today I have begotten you, or today I have become your father. And so we can see here that the king is ascribed as God's son. And the today I have begotten you indicates not the sense of God bringing this king, who is now called God's son, into existence. No, that king has been in existence, understandably, since the inception of the psalm. In fact, in the previous verse, that king was already installed into his royal ministry. And so what we have here is the naming of this king God's son, and God declaring that he, of course, is the king's father. This is the act of coronating the king, the installation of the king. And so you can see the parallelism there. In verse 6 of Psalm 2, God installs the king for his royal ministry. And in verse 7, the installation of the king is described as the king being called the son of God. And God, of course, declaring that he is that king's father. So son of God is a title here for the royal king, for the Davidic king, for the anointed king, the king who is anointed for his kingly royal ministry. And so Psalm 2 is not talking about the birth of a king in the sense that the mother conceives and bears a child. It's using Son of God to describe this title for a king when he is installed and coronated. And that's very important because Luke is actually drawing from that understanding when he is describing Jesus' baptism. And Jesus' baptism, of course, has Jesus being anointed by the Holy Spirit. And it's a public ceremony indicating that he is being anointed by God for his ministry, for his ministry to be the Christ, to be the king. So Son of God here is used in a very different way than what we see in Luke chapter 1, verse 35. Now you might make the argument that this is a different sense of Son of God. It's not Jesus is the natural born Son of God. He is given this title, Son of God, meaning the King. And that's, of course, very true. But it's important that Luke seems to be able to make a distinction between these two ways of describing Son of God. And this, of course, will help us as we move further and we see how Jesus is described as Son of God based on his resurrection and ascension. So this moves us to our third point, Son of God at the resurrection and ascension. Now you'll recall, of course, that when Jesus ascended to heaven, he was enthroned at God's right hand. He sat down at the right hand of God. That means that he was enthroned at God's right hand. Jesus is not sitting on a folding chair up there next to God. To be sitting at God's right hand as the risen Lord and the King, you are enthroned. You are sitting on a throne next to God. So that's very important. Now, this gets described 
in Luke's theology, as we could see in a particular speech, which we can see in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 13, and the speech is given by Paul, the Apostle Paul. We have to understand that this coming from the book of Acts is still showing us the theology of Luke the Evangelist, even though Paul here is depicted as giving this speech. So let's look at the part of the speech that is relevant for our study. So this is Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 28. Luke says, And though they found no ground for putting him to death, putting Jesus to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written according to him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, and that he raised up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. This is Acts 13, verses 28 through 34. And so what's interesting here is that Luke seems to be able to admittedly draw on the second psalm, Psalm 2, to describe the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead and obviously ascended into heaven to be enthroned at God's right hand. So the use here of Psalm 2, verse 7, which is very clearly stated here, you are my son, today I have begotten you in Acts 13.33, is used in a different sense than the way that Luke used it in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, to refer to Jesus' baptism, which seemed to be a public anointing ceremony for Jesus' ministry. Here it seems to be pretty obviously used in regard to Jesus' resurrection, because Jesus was raised from the dead, proving that he is the Son of God. And of course, he was raised and he was exalted to heaven to be enthroned at God's right hand. Now, there have been some people and some Unitarians who have said that this reference here in Acts 13.33 is not a raising up in the sense that Jesus was dead and God brought him back to life. It is a raising up in the sense that God put him on the scene, which is a possible interpretation of what the phrase means. And we can see that earlier in the book of Acts. That is one of the ways that Luke actually uses this particular word. I'm not so sure after reflection that this is what is meant in this particular passage, however. I do think that consistently the act of God raising up Jesus is in reference to bodily resurrection. And I think you can see this pretty clearly. I just want to make this point because this alternative interpretation that seems to be drawing on Psalm 2 in Acts 13.33, where Jesus is depicted as being raised up to refer to God just putting him on the scene, not in reference to bodily resurrection. That seems to have a vocal minority's support. 
So just to kind of look at the particular passage. First, we can see that the fact that God raised up Jesus in verse 33 uses the verb enistemi in Greek, and that's the very same verb that's used in verse 34, where it says, as for the fact that he raised him up from the dead. So in verse 34, it is clear that the act of God raising him up is the raising him up from the dead, and so it would seem to follow that the same meaning also is in verse 33. But if we go back further in verse 30, Paul says in this speech, but God raised him from the dead. That is clearly bodily resurrection. In verse 31, he talks about the witnesses to the bodily resurrection. And of course, in verse 34, the act of being raised is described as being raised from the dead. So if prior to verse 33, it is clearly bodily resurrection, and after verse 33, it is clearly bodily resurrection, then it seems that the most natural way to read verse 33 is that he raised up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm, is a reference to the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Jesus was dead, he was in the grave, and God gave life back to Jesus, and so that he was raised from the dead. But the interesting thing, of course, is that this act of being raised up draws on Psalm 2 in a different way than the way that Luke has used it earlier in Luke chapter 3. It seems that Luke is able to use this passage from Psalm 2 in two very different ways. Both of them are declaring that Jesus is the Son of God. Both of them seem to be identifying Jesus as God's Son in a sense of a title, because Jesus is clearly the actual Son of God based on his birth, and Luke has already demonstrated that in Luke chapter 1. So the whole point of our study here has been to demonstrate that a particular writer of the New Testament, that is Luke, seems to be able to describe Jesus as Son of God in three very distinct ways. Jesus is Son of God at his birth, he is Son of God at his baptism, and he is Son of God at his resurrection slash ascension to heaven to be enthroned. And Luke doesn't seem to think that there is any sort of contradiction with this. This is all part of his theology. And so if Luke seems to be comfortable describing Jesus, Son of God, in different ways, then naturally he would expect that his readers and his Christian community to also be comfortable with this sort of terminology and this flexibility of describing Jesus in different ways. I should make the point that Luke does not describe Jesus, Son of God, as some sort of eternally begotten figure or as some sort of divine person within the Godhead, which might hint at or suggest that God is more than one person. There's no suggestion that this Son of God is a pre-existing figure, at least in the literal sense of the word. Now I want to move to our fourth and final point and discuss something that has been brought up by a few scholars, and that deals with the subject of adoptionism. Our fourth point is, does the New Testament teach a Christology of adoptionism. 
So what is adoptionism? Maybe you have not heard of this phrase. Adoptionism is the doctrine that says that God adopted Jesus. Jesus being a normal human being with no relation to God. And Jesus was adopted by God in order to be the Son of God at some particular moment of his lifetime, usually during his baptism, but it's specifically when the Spirit descends upon Jesus. That would be the point when Jesus is adopted to be the Son of God, according to the doctrine of adoptionism. Now, the term adoption does indeed appear in the New Testament. It appears five times. The term adoption is the Greek word eothesia. Yet in all of its occurrences, this word adoption, it never refers to God adopting Jesus to be the Son of God. The term adoption always refers to believers being adopted into God's family. So while the New Testament does talk about adoption, it does not describe this particular doctrine of adoptionism in which God selects the human Jesus to be his son by adopting him and declaring him to be son of God when the Spirit descends upon him. So it seems unlikely that Luke, who describes Jesus as son of God in all three ways, at his birth, at his baptism, and at his ascension, it's unlikely that Luke held to this doctrine of adoptionism. Adoptionism was actually held by some Christians in the centuries after the New Testament, but there are a few scholars that have argued that the concept is taught in the New Testament itself. However, it doesn't seem that Luke is teaching this particular doctrine of adoptionism. Now, Craig Keener has a massive four-volume commentary on the book of Acts, the largest commentary ever written on the book of Acts, something nearing 4,000 pages. It's ginormous. And he says this in regard to the various ways that Luke describes Jesus as Son of God in volume 2, page 2071. Quote, In some sense, the virgin birth made him God's son, Luke 1, 32-35. In another, his baptism declared it, Luke 3, 22. Ultimately, his resurrection confirms it, end quote. And I think that is a good summation of the theology of Luke in regard to the various ways that Jesus described as son of God. The virgin birth made Jesus God's son, his baptism declared this particular fact, but ultimately the resurrection confirmed the fact. It's not that Jesus is no longer son of God by birth when he is anointed for his ministry at his baptism, and it's not that he was not declared to be the messianic son of God at his baptism when he was announced it at his resurrection, according to Acts 13.33. All of those Different ways that Jesus is Son of God seem to be a natural way that Luke is able to make sense of the data. And, of course, he expects his readers to be able to make sense of that. And we are readers 
of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. So there you have it, different ways in which Jesus is the Son of God, but particularly we're looking at the theology of Luke the Evangelist. So thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Please join us next week as we look a little bit more closely at how Jesus is the Son of God because of his miraculous birth and the different ways that the New Testament depicts Jesus as Son of God based on this important act where Jesus is brought into existence, meaning he is Son of God in the most natural sense of the word. God became the Father of Jesus, and Jesus was fathered by God. So please look forward to our next episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we promote the sound truths of the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. You can support us for free by subscribing on iTunes and YouTube, by giving us an honest review on iTunes, and by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. If you'd like to offer a donation, please check out the description of this teaching for a link to PayPal. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.